Welcome to Pensive Series. Brian Ford has spent more than a decade at the nexus of technology, entrepreneurship, and public policy. He is currently the director of digital currency at the MIT Media Lab, where he leads efforts to mainstream digital currencies like Bitcoin through research and incubation of high-impact applications of the emerging technology. Most recently, he was the senior advisor for mobile and data innovation at the White House, where he spearheaded efforts to leverage emerging technologies to address the president's most critical national priorities. Prior to his work at the White House, Ford founded one of the largest phone companies in Nicaragua after serving as a business and technology volunteer in the Peace Corps. In recognition of his work, Ford was named a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. In this episode, we talk about his journey and all the different lessons he learned along the way. Where, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Southern California. Yeah, uh, just as um, a little geek trying to figure out, you know, um, how to build a computer. I remember, um, you know, I, uh, I asked my dad for a, uh, a computer, and he goes, uh, I will not, uh, you know, get you a, buy you a computer, but if you want to go to the computer parts store, we can go there and we'll build one. So, you know, we said, okay, well, I don't know how to build one. So we learned how to build one together. And, you know, that kind of demystified computers, which I think are, a, a, you know, a mystifying thing. Um, you don't know how, you just get your laptop in a beautiful package, right? And it just works. But I think yeah. understanding all of the pieces together kind of inspired me to start taking classes um, in, um, in, in programming and, 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 uh, and other applications like Photoshop and all of these different things where, like, oh, this is how a website works. And it's actually not as hard to build as one might think. Right, and so he started to demystify. Went from demystifying hardware to demystifying software, and that's really, you know, inspired me to create um, uh, a small little, you know, computer technology consulting company in high school. I started that and ran that through college to get, you know, some extra pocket money. And um, but you know, what I was really passionate about, um, and I don't know if I've gone on too long, but uh, you know, um, you know, is you know, I was doing this thing called Model United Nations yeah, yeah. In, in high school. Yeah. And so, you know, just kind of being a geek but always interested in international development and affairs, I always thought, you know, is there a technology uh, solution that may be able to help this? And so, you know, I, I don't know. You can always, you know, come up with some, you know, resolution. But how based in that is reality, right? And um, my college roommate said, uh, you know, hey, why don't we go? I, I'm thinking about joining the Peace Corps. And so what we did is he said, he said, why don't you just come with me? I was, it was like a Wednesday night. I had nothing to do. So we went, and uh, I ended up in the Peace Corps serving in Nicaragua, and he ended up in law school. <laughs> um, and uh, I went to the Peace Corps uh, to better understand uh, uh, developing nation. Uh, that was during high school? This was in, no, I'm in college now. Okay. Yeah, in college. And then I left, uh, when I finished college, I joined the Peace Corps. And... Um, we, uh, I, I served in Nicaragua for two years. I was a, a high school teacher teaching small business classes, like junior achievement classes. Um, but I really got to learn um, about, you know, the needs um, in a developing nation. And that, I also saw this emerging technology coming about called voice over IP. 
And I thought that, wow, this could be really powerful. Um, you could save Nicaraguans 90% on their phone calls, drop it down from a dollar a minute to 10% a minute to 10 cents a minute. And, you know, what you also saw at the same time is, you know, I think there was at the time about a billion dollars or uh, of about you know, 20% of the GDP uh, was coming in in the form of remittances. And so everyone was having to call their family back home, in addition to me trying to call my family back home. And, um, and so we started a voice over IP company, and it became one of the biggest in the country. And so I've always kind of, you know, had this idea about how can emerging technologies, you know, have some form of social good. Then I went on to the White House, worked there for three and a half years as a senior advisor, looking at how we could use emerging technologies to help achieve policy goals, anything from Hurricane Sandy to working on the bankruptcy of uh, Detroit, working with the city uh, and the mayor. Um, and, uh, you know, then I went on to MIT and started this digital currency initiative, which is a research lab that focuses on cryptocurrencies. So how did you think about all these different decisions that then sort of looked like a turning point in your life? Hmm. new experiences, new ventures? Yeah, I think um, I think there's three things that I always you know, um, share with people who are thinking about this as well. I think the three things, um, you need to have like a thesis or a hypothesis, right? Like how do you think about the world and how you might change it, right? Okay, great, got that. So then you need to have three things that are important. Geography, right? So, you know, where do you want to live, right? Um, where are your friends, where are your families, or what do you, you know, or, or I just want to live in a different country for whatever it is, right? So geography is important, you got to figure that out. Um, platform, will this platform help you achieve that goal that you're trying to um, that you're trying to reach? And then third is, do you have a strong mentor that will give you air cover or a long leash and kind of gently guide you along the way? And so that's when I usually look for an opportunity. Those are the three things that I look for: um, you know, geography, uh, the right platform, and the right mentor. How, how did you find um, mentors in your own life? Uh, that's a good question. Um, well, uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, say new entrepreneurs worry about is that someone will steal their idea. You have to have the confidence that even if someone stole your idea, you will better execute them. You will better execute the idea, not the person. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so... Uh, You'll be faster eliminating them. <laughs> right? <laughs> you will out-execute them, right? And, uh, and I think the most valuable thing is uh, sharing your idea. When you share your idea with others, people invariably will say, well, do you know Jim? Do you know Susie? Do you know John? And by doing that, you'll start to find out who a good mentor could be. But you don't get that without sharing your ideas. And then uh, your, the currency initiative at the, at the MIT, um, mm -hmm. what, what is your vision there? Yeah, so we started it um, almost a year and a half ago. And what we wanted to do was we saw that, in general, academia and, uh, was not doing a great job of studying this really important technology. And so we really wanted to activate um, students and professors at MIT to study this. And so we, um, uh, and we also wanted to support the cryptocurrency community. First thing we did was hire three core developers, um, uh, or working on Bitcoin Core there at the time, Gavin Andreessen, Vladimir, and who's the lean maintainer of Bitcoin Core, and then Corey. Um, so that's one of the ways that we help support the community in addition to some workshops that we've helped with. Um, the other area is educating our students who have a 
deep desire to and hunger to learn this about this technology. We had two classes last fall. Had about 80 graduate students studying technology, which is really amazing. And in the and then in the spring, we hosted about uh, 40 graduate students do about 10 to 15 different research projects on this, in addition to other students who are studying cryptocurrency. So it's really uh, been quite powerful. Um, and I think you know part of our value proposition is been being an academic research center is um, being able to look at problems from so many different perspectives. While it's housed in the Media Lab, it's in collaboration with the Sloan School of Management, the Business School, and the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab, so you get different perspectives on a very in, um, uh, interdisciplinary technology. Um, and at the same time, um, people appreciate, and companies and governments appreciate working with us because we're not trying to sell them anything, right? It's not like if we say, hey, you should do X and Y, it's motivated because we want to sell you X and Y, right? And that helps us play, you know, an important role in the community. And I think that's part of where our key value proposition is um, compared to startups um, and, and, and other companies and governments. Have you had a philosophy in your life that sort of um, has informed your decisions and, you know, your actions? Um, you know, I, I, I generally um, look at how we can help address social issues with an emerging technology. I think if you look at, you know, my history from, you know, voice over IP to, you know, working with, um, you know, sharing economy and crowdsourcing and open data, um, for example, the, at the White House, and then now looking at Bitcoin, I, I just consistently look at, and I think this is continually becoming more important for more people um, to start thinking about that because the ramifications of emerging technologies that are becoming more, um, more plentiful every day from drones to autonomous vehicles to artificial intelligence. I mean, everything they talk about, these singularity conferences, um, is, uh, is going to be critical because, you know, we have to think about how government is going to um, uh, think about these technologies. We have to think about how corporations, how startups, and how it's going to impact people, right, both as a consumer as a, and an employee. Um, and we need uh, a diversity of people thinking about this in the different different areas. And what makes you excited about the future? Um, well, I like uh, I like change, um, and I like you know opportunity. And I think what new technologies do is they um, they change the rules that have historically been written. And what it reinforces to us is that rules are never written in stone and that we need to embrace that change. But that change, you can be pessimistic about that change, or you can be um, optimistic about that change. And so I look at it through, um, you know, very conscious of the things we need to be worried about, but very optimistic about how we can leverage that technology for, um, for you know, benefit. And how do you embrace change? How do you embrace change? Wow, that's like the, the billion-dollar management question. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, me personally is just through um, education and conversation. Um, you know, when some form of technology captures your imagination, um, then you're kind of inspired to read it. The way I share, um, people always ask, like, okay, Brian, like, uh, I'm willing to invest some time in this Bitcoin thing and understanding it, right? And so how I send it to him, I send him, I send him an email, and I have this like pre-formatted email, and I send him the information. I have about like five or six different like subheadings, and I say, okay, if you get through, these are the first. Here's the first four articles you should read. Take about thirty minutes of your time. Anyone who expresses interest in technology will at least give it thirty minutes of their time, right? 
And then, they, and, and, but I have it stacked in like how it will start to capture their imagination, mm. going a little more deep and a little more technical and a little more, you know, time intensive, right? To, okay, well, now you have an hour. Now you have two to three hours of reading. Okay, now you have a week of reading, right? And people you like that format, both non-technical and technical people, um, because it really kind of walks them into the technology. And by the end, if they make it to the end, you know, they're on fire to, to come up with how it can apply um, through the set of experiences that they have had. Because, you know, you, me, everyone has had a different set of experiences, and so they'll apply the technology in ways that will benefit their the experience they've, they've had. Yeah. And how have you um, structured your thinking or learned some, like, methods to, to be more effective at what you do? Um... Because you have a very, you know, particular way of looking at the world. You've yeah. done all these amazing experiences. You, you grew up and yeah. you had all these, like, you know, you mentioned how when, when you, when you dematerialize um, the computer and make it yeah. really sort of... Yeah, I think, you know, and I've never really, I don't really think about this, so I don't, so it was, like, hard for me to kind of come up with an answer until you kind of, like, you know, prompt me and you start thinking about these, these things. But I think you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Right? And that sounds like a total cliche coming out of my mouth. But, you know, I left the White House to go work on Bitcoin. Right? Like, I went from, you know, no one will say, oh, it's, you know, no one will say, like, oh, why did you go work at the White House? Right? Um, uh, but, you know, people will say, why did you go work on Bitcoin? Right? And you have to have faith in your curiosity and your passion and that that is where your satisfaction comes from, not from what others will think. Because I'll tell you one thing, over the last year and a half, most of the people that question my decision about you know deep diving on Bitcoin have now said, wow, that was actually really insightful. <laughs> and so you have to have confidence that your, you know, your passion, your intellectual curiosity will lead to good things. And that'll be self-satisfying enough to overcome the skeptics. And how do you follow that intuition on a daily basis? Um, I I uh, I try and talk to um, a lot of different people. Um, and when you keep talking to, to different people, keep sharing your ideas in an uninhibited way. Um, and you hear their reaction. You see their reaction. You um, you hear their different perspective on it. Then I think what's um, you know most interesting is it helps you you know read the tea leaves. You can see what's coming because someone will say, "Oh, well, that's interesting." You know, I work in the healthcare space, and what you just described to me would be really helpful for electronic health records. Well, that's interesting. I don't know anything about electronic health records, but tell me more. And then as a result of that, I was like, I have no idea how Bitcoin applies to this or cryptocurrencies apply to this. As a result of that, um, we hosted a workshop um, bringing together uh, folks from the healthcare industry and from our students who are working on cryptocurrencies. As a result of that, it inspired several students to create a class project. As a result of that, that turned into a you know, full research project um, that now is in, um, in, in beta um, called Medrec. Right? And so by being open-minded and by sharing your ideas and you know, expressing your curiosities to a diversity of folks on a daily basis, it really helps me think about technologies, not from my experience, but through the you know, lens of other people. 
Has there been a formative experiences that has shifted the way you think in a very like um, in a very like paradigm way? Um, I think that initially you lack a lot of confidence in trusting your intellectual curiosity or your passion. I remember when um, you know I was doing well as an entrepreneur and entrepreneurship and Peace Corps are not things that people generally kind of associate together. Um, and so when I said I was leaving, you know, um, I was going to finish this little company that I started that was going well to join the Peace Corps, I had a lot of people um, say, Brian, that's not for you. Brian, why would you do that? Brian, there are so many other more, you know, lucrative opportunities that you could pursue. Totally true. And it really made it hard for me to fully embrace doing that, right? But I did. Uh, and I realized then I, you know, that it was actually the right move after I did it, right? And then, you know, you know, you know what's crazier than, than joining the Peace Corps? Starting a phone company in the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, right? But, you know, what's crazier than that? Bringing together 85 people on average under the age of 25 to try and compete against Carlos Slim, one of the richest men in the world, right? And so, you know, you gradually gain confidence um, in being able to trust your instincts um, and trust your intellectual curiosity and your passion, um, but you, you have to gain that through actually doing it. And it's going to be hard, but it becomes worth it. During your time um, with your work with, your, with the White House, what did you learn about how government works that surprised you? One, I think people think that, um, have a perception of people in government as like not very sophisticated or, um, you know, up to date on the latest things. And, and I found, and, and not very hardworking, and I found some of the smartest, some of the most hardworking, some of the most dedicated people um, in the world working in government. And I'm, you know, really proud to, to, have, to have worked with them and, and, and still appreciate everything that they do for us. Um, and I think that people take for granted taking into account 300, you know, plus million stakeholders that you're trying to satisfy, right? When you're a small startup, you have 10,000 customers. They're probably quite like-minded, and it's relatively easy to make decisions. Mm. If you're Facebook today, it's very hard to make a decision because now you have more than a billion stakeholders that you're impacting. And I think what you're starting to see in terms of the governance and how, um, how the company makes decisions um, is a lot different and a lot less maverick than it was when it had, you know, a million users. And it reflects more of the, you know, um, multi-stakeholder process that a government would have to implement. And so people take for granted the scale and the diversity of people that a government has to serve. And what I learned is, you know, while it may be slower in acting, um, that's not, not necessarily a bad thing. But at the same time, we have to be mindful of embracing technologies and creating some form of sandbox to allow innovation to happen at a um, scale that won't hurt um, a massive amount of people. Um, if something was to go wrong, um, but allows for enough innovation for um, a company or a new technology 
um, to really test the limits of it for us all to, to benefit from it. How do you think we're going to solve these big problems that we have at the intersection of governance and technology? By bringing technologists into government, right? Um, a lot of the role that I, that I played was being an ambassador or translator between culture and language, right? And, you know, I think one of the failures that we can all agree on is, you know, the failure of healthcare.gov, right? But since then, I think there's more than 300 technologists that have been brought into government to help apply uh, their deep technology thinking um, and uh, uh, to build more robust systems. And, you know, the greatest thing that could have happened was actually healthcare, ironically, healthcare.gov's failure because it lit a fire under people and made them recognize that your policy goal will fail if it is based on technology and the technology implementation is poor. The next thing we're going to see, um, and I think uh, Steve, um, Steve Case mentions this in his book, The Third Wave, is he calls it a third wave czar. And what that is, is it's a role um, that looks at um, emerging technologies and um, the regulations that may be blocking it and the different business models and becomes that responsible person for creating that strategy for um, policy for all these emerging technologies on heavily regulated areas. And I think, you know, in the future, we're going to see not only at the federal level, but, you know, at the city and the state level. City is generally on the front lines of emerging technologies, right? Um, and then they have to coordinate across regulations that are enforced by not only their own city, but the state and the federal. Um, and, you know, um, Mark Andreessen wrote a really uh, interesting post that I referred to a lot in Politico. I think he called it, I can't remember the title, it's called like Drone Valley. And what uh, he was suggesting is that a city like Detroit, who's, you know, in the middle of rebuilding, is able to um, uh, create a set of regulations and a regulatory sandbox that allows you to test out drones um, and different applications of drones in a safe way. And what that does is that moves a drone industry to go to that city. And I think what you see with that is while cities and states and others, uh, governments have, you know, competed for business based on tax incentives, right? The real opportunity going forward is not going to be tax incentives. Uh, it's going to be um, uh, creating the, a regulatory environment um, and a cultural uh, community that embraces emerging technologies, and that's going to be much more attractive than any tax incentive you can ever give to a startup or a large company. What do you do on a daily basis or on a regular basis to challenge your own thinking? Um, <laughs> uh, it's a good question. You know, I I think this goes back to, you know, what I um, uh, I think you really have to force yourself to to listen to people who have a contrarian view to you, right? And try and balance, I forgot who's the, the person says this, but like, you know, the, uh, and, you know, the most intelligent person is able to balance two separate um, perspectives in their head. And, and, mm. and, um, and I think that's true. I think you, you know, one of the outcomes of that we, you know, became more, that we became aware in popular culture of the, uh, the, the big issue that came up of, um, at Facebook about whether the editors of the Facebook trending had a liberal bias, right, was that it's actually the trending thing is, is important, but what's actually 
more important or more impactful to how you think is um, the echo chamber that you uh, live in of your newsfeed, right? Your newsfeed is populated by, you know, the people that you associate with and your friends who, you know, uh, may have a similar style of thinking to you. And when your main source of news is your Facebook feed, and that's becoming more and more prominent as media companies, you know, start to uh, adopt inserting their articles in the in the Facebook feed, that you're starting to live in an echo chamber, hmm. right? And so, you know, when you look at the news applications on your phone, do you have a you you probably have a, a domestic? Um, do you you know do you have your hometown as well, right? Um, if you don't live in your hometown anymore, do you have an international one, right? So you know I live in D.C., but you know, I have the LA Times on my app and I look at it every single day, right? Um, I also have the BBC application and I read it every day to make sure that I have both an international perspective. That's, you know, I could do a lot better, right? But that's just a small example of making sure that you have, you know, different perspectives coming through um, to break out of the, you know, echo chamber that I live in on my Facebook feed. And last question, if you could give your younger self advice, what kind of advice would you give yourself? It's all going to be okay. <laughs> um, you, as you should, think through all of the potential risks of every decision you make and how it, that one decision is going to invariably impact the rest of your life. Uh, not true. <laughs> as it turns out, you can make mistakes um, and, you know, um, you know, you can rebound. Um, but, you know, um, it'll all be okay. And I think... Um, we need to think through ways to enable the um, people to make challenging decisions, right? Um, and, you know, I think one example of that is people are less afraid of leaving their company um, uh, to do a startup because now they can get health care insurance through the Affordable Care Act, right? So that's one policy decision that was made that can enable, um, you know, people to take more risks. And so what other policy decisions can we make to allow people to take um, more risks? Because, you know, it's hard. Thank you for listening and see you next time.